Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. It's great to have you in. It's great to be back. Too long an absence. We'll try and minimize those absences in the future, but I think we were off 13 days. Way too long. Unless I'm overseas, I don't want to be off that long again. We've got a great show. You'll enjoy hearing uh, Patrick Brown's perspective on uh, some of what happened earlier this week. Stephen Del Duca, Ontario Liberal leader, and Betty, an Ontario-based teacher, joins us to weigh in. And I promise you don't want to miss that particular interview. It's all coming up. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for finding us. Please feel free to subscribe as well so we can download the podcast to you every day. And you don't have to look for us and hunt and find us. It's on your phone or your laptop or wherever you want to be. Thank you again for listening. Uh, When I say it's really good to be back, you'll have to trust me. I don't know if I'll feel the same Thursday morning at uh, 6.06 a.m., but I feel that way now, and we have a short work week um, with Tuesday morning being today on January the 4th. Um, I'm taking time. It's interesting. I'm going to take time at the end of the month. Uh, my wife is is still scheduled to go to uh, China because the, the people who go to the Olympics are still scheduled to go to China. I'm trying to get that delayed a year, by the way. I'm not one for rumors and innuendo and unfounded speculation. Actually, give me all that. Give me, give me, give me, give me that stuff. But I can't uh, I, I can't work hard enough to spread rumors that the Olympics are going to get postponed a year. I want that. I want that very badly. Um, it's all it's about the only thing I want to have canceled or postponed. Um, other than some of my cosmetic surgery coming up, that uh, that I that I, I I'd endorse. I can't endorse a lot of this other stuff. You know this. I can't. Uh, but if China, if China saw fit in their uh, benevolent wisdom um, to uh, push the Olympics back to February twenty three, that'd be great. And uh, the option is there. I'm going to take. I think the January thirty first week off. Because she flies on like January 28th and isn't back to like February 19th. Thank baby Jesus that February is the shortest month of the year. But that will be a long three-week stretch. Whether kids are online for school or whether they are not. When last we left you, even if I'd done shows last week, even if I'd walked you up to New Year's Eve, and I wish I had. I wish I I mentioned earlier in the show I didn't have the bandwidth to keep going. Um, these were scheduled days off, and um, if you 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 should take them. Management's amazing here. Okay, they'll work with me if I say I need a day or I need another day or I. <laughs> How about all of February off? Let's work. Let's look into this. Um, but it's it's kind of a new foundation up show in a way from September. So I didn't want to miss much time in the fall, and I don't want to miss much time until like June from here on in. So I don't expect to be gone very much between now and um, and the middle of, of June, of course. Um, you know, when um, I, like when the Blue Jays come back, I think, from Dunedin and Buffalo this year, I really want to be here in, in middle of July. I really, I really do. Um, when the Leafs are playing their playoff games in, uh, in you know, Sunrise, Florida and going to the Stanley Cup Finals, I want to be here to tell you about them because we're Toronto and we're Ontario and we can't do these things. So when last we left you, and I got a lot to say on schools today, but I don't want to, I, I don't want it to dominate. I think it's the biggest issue, but retail is a massive issue. I ache painfully 
for uh, restaurant owners, restaurant workers. I worked in a restaurant. Um, it's I always think this at Christmas time when you work in retail. When you've worked in um, retail or the restaurant industry, and I suppose they're one and the same in a way, oh my goodness, are you nice to those people the rest of your existence? It takes a lot for me to go, where's our appetizers? I never do that. Um, I should speak up more probably. Um, but uh, so however loud uh, you think and, and um, voracious you think I am for three and a half hours a day, I'm, I'm a church mouse in a restaurant. I'm a church mouse in re- – um, can you – Tell me where the uh, where those um, half knit sweaters. Are. Uh, that's me, but uh, I'm aching for these people this morning because this didn't have to happen, and I'm sure that it shouldn't happen. And um, by the way, w- uh, can we get this out of the way right now? We're not in a lockdown. This isn't a lockdown. I don't endorse lockdowns either. This is not. We're not locked down. Schools are locked down. So. The fact that you can go shopping today, the fact that a five-year-old can go to the mall today, a five-year-old can go to the mall who's of the demographic that's the least affected, afflicted, any other A word you want to use, by COVID-19. They're the least likely to have a bad – they can go to the mall today and wander around Yorkdale Mall with a mask on, the same as they could on December 17th, the last day of school. They can do that today. Did you know that a four-year-old, an unvaccinated four-year-old, can go to daycare today? And that's all right. No no vaccine because there's not vaccines for four-year-olds. A vaccinated five-year-old can't go to kindergarten t- tomorrow. It's just too dangerous. It's way too dangerous. It's really scary. Um. Let me play you this from Marit Stiles, NDP education critic. And uh, this is not a gotcha moment. She's um, a great guest. And I got, you know, I think passionate and emotional with her because I am about that, um, about everything. I want. I don't want to do non-passionate topics. If I'm not interested in a topic, you're going to spot that a mile away. You're going to spot that 1.6 kilometers away. You will. So education is something I care about. Kids are something I care about, whether I'd had them or not. Um, and, uh, and you know, this, uh, for new listeners, I was raised by two teachers. A high school teacher was my dad, history and economics. And my mom taught JKSK and eventually uh, ESL, a lot of acronyms. She likes those. I don't, uh, LOL, but here's what, here's Marit Stiles and me telling her that if, and when the Ford government says schools are closed, you need to say that's the wrong decision. That's the wrong decision. That's not, well, if only it hadn't come to this and if only schools had been made safer. I got you. I'm with you. I got hours and oodles of time to talk about what the Ford government didn't do, hasn't done, won't do, by the way, in the next two, won't do in the next two weeks. I got tons of time for it. It doesn't matter. Yesterday was wrong. And it remains just as wrong today, and it will remain certainly wrong tomorrow. Here's uh, Marit Stiles, NDP education critic, on the show with me. This is a bit dated, but it's the last show I did back on December 22nd. It is critical for our kids that your party, and probably the liberals too, say it's the wrong move to close schools no matter what. I really believe I, that. I really think, you know, and I and I do believe, I agree with you, and I think that, you know, that that is what people are looking for. They're looking for somebody with guts to show leadership here, right? Yeah. Um, to call it like it is. And I 
can tell you on Friday, I got a bit of pushback from some people saying, no, no, you know, we have, we may have to do this. We may have to close schools just to keep the numbers down. And I'm saying, look, if we're at that, we're, if that's our starting point, we're so wrong. But I think you're absolutely right. Schools should not be closing in January. Our kids need to be safe. They need to be, uh, our schools need to be safely open, certainly. Mm-hmm. But we know what needs to happen. We know how to do that. And our kids can't be the ones to bear the brunt for the failures of government or, or frankly, the rest of us. Yeah. We've, we've really let children down. We've really let kids down. Not only. Not only have we asked them to do things we would never tolerate as adults, we would never, ever tolerate uh, sitting in a room for eight hours a day with a mask on, having conversations. You must find it strange when Doug Ford steps to a podium. And again, you, you couldn't pay me enough to watch that stuff live right now. I, you know, I get the details. I dig into it. I know I, I come prepared. Like, I don't think I need to explain that. But I'm not watching these things live anymore. And I've told you for months, I wouldn't air these things live. If it was up to me, and maybe it isn't totally up to me, I don't know. But none of these things start before 9 a.m., so I don't have to choose. It's a tougher choice, I'm sure, for other people. But I wouldn't air these things live because I want the best information out there. And pardon me, excuse me, if I'm skeptical that you're getting the best information. But I don't. It doesn't matter to me if hundreds of thousands of people are taking what what gets said yesterday as gospel. That's too many. So, no, there's a little bit of a not-on-my-watch principle, and there's a little bit of a, well, what does the other side say? And speaking of the other side, Stephen Del Duca will join us at 7.05 uh, this morning, Ontario Liberal leader. Uh, Patrick Brown later in the show in the 8 o'clock hour. I know uh, the mayor of Brampton has things to say, um, especially about some of what was closed yesterday beyond the obvious with schools. But the right answer for Stephen Del Duca, and I have to ask him this at the top of the hour, is yesterday's wrong. Tell me it's not. Because I didn't. I have not heard that yet from anybody with the liberals or the NDP saying, wrong decision, they should be open. Because they'll say, well, if, you know, this should have happened and that should have happened and the teachers have to be able to Which is it? Which is it and where is it? And, and Marit Stiles, to her credit, said, we need people with courage. Well, we're seeing a gentleman do that south of the border right now. He's the new incoming mayor of New York City. He was shoot, sworn in on New Year's Day. The headline in the New York Post this morning is bringing swagger back. Adams vows to keep New York City schools open. New York City, comma, schools open. But obviously schools in the city proper, right, in the seven, in the five boroughs. Open amid Omicron. Listen to this clip today, and this will tell you everything, everything that we're missing in Ontario right now. Here's Eric Adams. The safest place for our children is in a school building. And we are going to keep our schools open and ensure that our children are safe in a safe environment. We're not sending an unclear message of what is going to happen day to day. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen day to day. We are staying open. We're going to do everything that we have to do to keep our schools open. And I know there's questions about staffing. I know there's questions about testing. There's a lot of questions. But we're going to turn those question marks into an exclamation point. We're staying open. Fantastic. That's the mayor of New York City. And look, the president of the United States, um, I don't think he's doing terribly well right now handling this. And many of the concerns about 
Joe Biden's longevity in being an effective communicator and politician that were um, pushed forward, even during the election campaign and during, even during the Democratic primary, are coming home to roost now. It's not great. It's not great. And it's not, it's not positive for the Democrats. But there's a mayor who says, this is what's happening. My kingdom, like what I wouldn't give for that kind of leadership anywhere right now, anywhere right now. We've got an empty suit in an empty soul of a mayor of Toronto. Seems like a nice person. You'd like, I've interviewed him several times. He hasn't come on in ages. We ask, we get nothing back. It's fine. It's totally fine. I've been critical. I've been fair. I've said when he's done good things. I've said when I disagree, but the the thickness of the skin, I worry, is a concern right now. That's an empty void of leadership at the top of the, of the ladder in Toronto. And there's Mayor Adams coming in on day one with what's being described as swagger. And I've told you this before. I think I don't have this together at all sometimes. COVID-19, the pandemic, all the doldrums we go through, um, figuring out how I'm going to tell my kids yesterday, it, it eats me um, up, period. But, uh, but, you, you, but it happens, and you get through it, and you tell somebody some bad news that you love, and, and you feel terrible about it because you feel like you're the liar. You feel like you're telling them something that you, you, you told them before wouldn't happen again. <laughs> you relapsed, but it's not my fault. It's not, it's not a decision I agree with. But when a household has confidence, your kids have confidence. And what he said yesterday, he went to an elementary school with a new school's chancellor that he appointed, and he says, when a mayor has swagger, the city has swagger. A-freaking-men. A-men. Eric Adams. Um, we can't all pick up and move our collective lives to New York City, but uh, let's look into the logistics of that over the next several months and see if we can... I don't know. I was going to say keep our health care, but even that is speculative right now, whether we're in a better place, plain and simple. All right. If you're trying to figure out how your 10 and 8-year-old um, being home tomorrow and for the foreseeable future, at least a couple of weeks, maybe a month, uh, is going to help uh, nursing shortages, um, your guess is as good as mine and as well as our next guest as well. She uh, joined Twitter. Someone should have talked her out of that. Um, August 1st of this year. This is what she wrote. As a teacher, we practice running towards danger in a lockdown to ensure our students are safe from harm. Why are we now using them as a shield to protect us from irrational fear? Children are our collective responsibility. That's why I chose this profession. She is Betty. She's an Ontario nurse, and she joins me now on Toronto Today. It is great to have you on. Um, that announcement uh, Monday didn't go the way you would have wanted because you want to be in the classroom. I think most teachers do. And we want our kids in the classroom. How did it make you feel? I feel I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling, um, you know, this is a this is a fight I've been fighting for a while. Uh, very publicly, my my students are aware. They know where I stand in regards to uh, in person learning. And you know, when I walked out of that building in in December, it was under the understanding we were coming back. And I had a lot of fearful students, a lot of concerned students that. Um, were rightfully so thinking, you know, this is going to end up like last year. And, and I stood before them and I promised them it wouldn't. And so today I'm struggling because I'm there 
their voice. And, and I've had these kids look me in the eye and say, miss, can you do something? Can you please do something for us? Because nobody is listening. And that's really what's fueled my, my fight here. So today I'm feeling like no matter how hard I'm fighting, no matter how many people I try to talk to, it's just hitting one wall after another. And I'm also just standing here wanting to know why I want to know where's the data that shows that this is what needs to be done because the data I'm looking at shows that schools are not a place of transmission, that more transmission happens outside of school. And, and, and the data I'm looking at is showing that our children and youth are breaking from the inside out. And, and why doesn't that data matter? Yeah, I'm, I'm finding there's a lot of pivots and I'm, I'm always happy to engage somebody who's um, who's hesitant or, concern because those are real those are real emotions mm-hmm. people have so if if you know if i said to a, a teacher i'm practically like why would you not want to be in the classroom on wednesday that's that's what you do that's the career path you chose um it's like it's the career path i watched both my parents uh walk for you know 35 years of a career each and uh while raising three kids and i you know, if someone says, well, it's because the kids aren't all vaccinated yet. I'm like, well, that may not happen for a little bit of time. Oh, well, it's it's about this and it's about my, you know, my own safety. But you're vaxxed and boosted. Well, it's about hospital bed. Like, I just find there's a lot of shifting yeah. of of the of the you know, we, we use the phrase moving the goalposts. And I want to listen and I want to understand. But I'm worried um, like any other occupation. So I'm not picking on teachers. I'm worried Mm -hmm. like any other occupation where someone doesn't want to go back to the office. You'll find a reason if I if I if I blow up the first two reasons, you'll find a third. If I blow up the third, you'll find a fourth. That's what I worry about where what we've got here with a very loud vocal minority that doesn't want to go back almost no matter what. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there was no clear criteria given today of, you know, what are the metrics we're trying to meet to open these doors and to welcome these kids in and that's causing anxiety on both ends of the spectrum and like you i am very sympathetic to people who are concerned but as an educator i had a choice this year to do online or to do in person and i chose in person knowing that this is a roller coaster ride but that we now have another tool in our toolbox which is the vaccines and if someone wants the vaccine they have access to it and so i just cannot comprehend why we are still in March 2020. I, I, I cannot wrap my head around this. And I am a grown adult. How does a child or how does a teenager whose mind is developing, how do they comprehend this? And that's where I'm really, it's, it's, it's really tearing me up because how do you explain that to someone who, who a large portion of their life to this point has been this roller coaster ride? Betty is a teacher in Ontario. She's joining us on Toronto today on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. And I think when you tell your kids all the time and, and I get kids catch me, well, you know, you said we would do this. You said we'd go to the zoo. You said I could have this. So I never want to feel like I'm I'm deceiving my kids. But every parent is nodding their head, listening to this going. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And we do have to do that to navigate the day to day. But when it's I'm tired of disappointing them, I'm tired of saying no. And and again, but it's it's weird because what what I told them would happen after they got vaccinated has not materialized. So, right. you, you know, we talk about levels of trust that that you can get broken pretty easily when you're younger and, and that you learn as an adult. Well, some of that is just just how life goes sometimes. 
it's a rough ride explaining this to kids uh, that that either we were wrong or we strung you along and and something was something that we said it wasn't not their safety, not the vaccine's efficacy, but just when you could get back to being a kid again. And and we have absolutely done wrong by them in a lot of respects. I, I agree with you. And we've lost the fundamental principle of what it means to care for our youth. And and that means like cons- consistency, stability and providing them hope. And like you said, I'm standing before a class of students every single day who look me in the eye and say, Miss, I did what they asked me to do. What else do I have to do? And and I don't have an answer for that. And now we're looking at the vaccine rollout for our younger children. And a lot of parents are hesitant because it, what we're seeing is that it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things when it comes to living your life. The the amount of of frustration and anger that is felt towards uh, the education system, this is going to take years to get rid of. And and it's it's just it breaks my heart because I'm I am in it for the right reasons and I want to be in my class more than anything on Wednesday. And I worry about the lasting impacts of these decisions that we were told today was made within minutes. You know, this was made within minutes, he says. So what is this telling us? And why is our retail open and our schools not? Do you think that teachers, even if it's colleagues of yours or not colleagues of yours, Betty, would they have would they have walked out on Wednesday? Would they have not showed up? Would they have had some kind of sick out? I know there were fringe groups trying to organize such Mm -hmm. things. Do you think um do you think people would have would have stayed home and just said i'm not going in and again whether it's legitimate fear for their own health or whether it's to play some politics and politics is a thing it is mm-hmm. um what would that have happened wednesday no no i i i i do not know one person who would not have shown up on wednesday i have spent the last two, three days, as we saw this kind of building, I've been having conversations with people I work with who are destroyed over this. There is no consensus that anyone I work with wanted this. So I have read these perspectives online, but I don't see these perspectives in my real day-to-day life, which is why it's, it shocked me so much to hear these things. The, the relationship, how long have you taught? Um, when did you start teaching? I started, so this would be my 16th year. Wow. Congratulations. And and again, thank if I haven't said it yet, thank you for doing what you do. It's, uh, it's, it's massively important and, and you'll be doing what you do best again, very soon, hopefully without interruption. If, if parents like me um, and voices like mine have anything to say about it. Now that said, we've had a contentious relationship between the Ford government and teachers unions from the get go mm-hmm. to me, seeing it from afar, um, there's there's blame to go around on on both sides. I think the government and the province and the minister have been at times adversarial and and not listening. And this is very much pre-COVID because you'd remember the rotating strikes and yes. the lack of contracts for a lot of boards and then and, and unions. And then COVID came around and uh, and, and, you know, some of that was put aside because we had like a global emergency on our hands. But it, it, teachers like you who sound so rational and together and composed must just want these two groups to get in a room and figure out this is why we have marriage counseling. This is why parents mm-hmm. go to counseling with, <laughs> with erstwhile teenagers to get them back on. Like this is there there's therapy needed in this relationship. How do you view it? 
uh, you took my thoughts and uh, voiced them out loud. I have been um, advocating for some sort of roundtable talk with anyone who has, you know, any investment in this to sit down and 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 talk this through. I have asked for doctors, teachers, teachers unions, government leaders to sit down and and focus on what matters here. What matters here is the well-being of our youth and to see this play out in front of me as some sort of political back and forth while everyone's ignoring uh, what the collateral damage is over these arguments. We all need to sit down like grown adults and come up with a solution that focuses solely on the well-being of our kids because that's all that should matter. After two years of this, that's all that matters right now. Did the unions um, push hard for these schools to close in your interpretation? You know, I I can't even say with certainty because I haven't been asked my uh, opinion. I do know there's a list of demands that want, were wanting to be met. Um, and again, I can understand that it's their job to advocate for the well-being of their members. However, I do know a lot of members would simply like to be asked how they feel and what do they need to feel safe so that we can come to some sort of understanding of, you know, what is actually needed versus what battles are we fighting that nobody wants to fight? This is the great question then that I think a lot of listeners have. So I'm going to ask it and I want you to call me on if you think my percentage is off. My guess from the teachers I hear from um, is that probably within, uh, you know, a, a certainty of maybe 10%, 75% of teachers wanted to be back. And at most, at most, one of four are, are would have checked a box saying, no, give us the two weeks. But I think three or four would have said, I want to be in that classroom on Wednesday. Yeah, in, in my world, your estimate is is low. I would say more wanted to be in the class. And I, and from what I'm gathering about, you know, what was the real issue here? It's not uh, COVID per se, but rather the policy surrounding COVID, the shortage of teachers because they're isolating due to contacts, um, although they're asymptomatic and vaccinated, uh, that was becoming a problem. And I've heard that not only from, you know, the press release today, but also from within the education world, that this was a true dilemma that they were having. And it wasn't because people didn't want to go well so one thing we didn't hear from the provinces what do the icu beds need to be under what do the hospitalizations need to be under what if it's faster what if it all happens faster can you open schools before the 17th we never get those it just feels like we never get those answers um no i I hope we can talk more uh and i hope this was uh this was good for you i i know the kind of messages you're getting from teachers and they're mostly um really inspirational and i know you're advocating that that other teachers um speak out as you have i really appreciate you coming on the show and doing it with me Uh, thanks for having me and yeah more people speaking up is better Betty joining us, uh, Ontario-based teacher. Um, that's We need more of that, more of that messaging. I think bravery is not a strong enough word uh, for doing that. And by the way, what are we doing when uh, she doesn't feel comfortable using her real name, her first name, her last name? Who's who's going to bother her? Who's I mean, guess. What occupation is going to come after her and harass her that she doesn't feel comfortable? You know the answer. So something's wrong when that's the case. David Leonhardt wrote in the New York Times this morning, I want you to hear this quote, um, and I don't think it's 
you know, uh, independent and exclusive to uh, our friends in the USNA. Many communities in the U.S. have accepted more harm to children in exchange for less harm to adults, often without acknowledging the dilemma or assessing which decisions lead to less overall harm. And it's amazing how the pivots turn, to me, that I'm not quoting anymore, from doing everything we could do for our elderly and our vulnerable and and uh, and the people we cared about, the people who raised us, our grandparents, all those people. And we did everything and anything. And we gave up this and we gave up that. And it's obvious. It's patently obvious. And I thought we had the energy for it as a society to, to do that for six-year-olds and 13-year-olds and even college students who want normalcy. And households who want to manage their own risk. I really thought we were. I thought we were headed there. And over the weekend, what happened happened. Uh, I want to welcome on the uh, mayor of uh, Brampton. He is Patrick Brown. Thank you for getting up, uh, being on with our listeners. I know, um, you know, it's it, uh, politicians can be fiery sometimes, show raw emotion, but they they try and keep it measured. Um, I, you're a young dad. You've advocated for people to be out there exercising. You wanted, you've, you've advocated for that the whole pandemic. I can only imagine what yesterday's announcement did to you and many of your constituents who are contacting you. Yeah, it's just very disappointing. I sort of feel like we're in the movie Groundhog Day where we're making the same mistakes over and over and over again, despite the fact that the science and the data is clear. You know, you look at all the research we know about COVID-19 and there is correlations with severe outcomes along with obesity and age, yet we are closing recreation, um, which, if anything, will make uh, it more difficult to foster healthy, active lifestyles. So it just makes you want to pull your hair out because I just don't get some of these decisions. It's just it's not in the best interest of, uh, of our community. I told the story a little while ago about a, a couple guys in their late 60s who go to the gym I go to, and the one was talking about his wife and how much she loves going there. Her cancer's in remission. She's been through hell and back. All our seniors have in these last uh, uh, couple years. And, yeah, to take to take that away from them. And I, I don't know, like, let's you and me and our listeners um, look outside. This is in April and May, right, when golf, tennis, pickleball, all that stuff was closed up. And at the minimum, you could go outside, throw a ball around, throw a Frisbee around. Now, at this time, after they've done everything they're asked, Mayor Brown, it's wrong. You know, for me, it's it's a tough pill to swallow because I've gone out there and I've encouraged the community get to get vaccinated. I've said, if you get vaccinated, we're going to get back to normal. And we've hit it out of the park. You know, the vaccination numbers in Canada yeah. are to the envy of, of, of many countries. And yet, um, you know, what's the point of having, you know, these vaccine requirements if you can't go into a rec centre, if you can't go into um, a, a restaurant? You know, my worry is that when you have announcements like this, it's going to increase vaccine hesitancy. We need to show a pathway of how to get back to normal. And I'd add to that, Greg, you know, there's an equity issue here. You know, there's... Uh, a lot of people uh, who don't have uh, any access to uh, backyards or uh, amenities where, where they can get exercise. One of the, the great benefits of public recreation centers and, and, and activities in the community is that it's an issue of equity, that everyone can use them. And right now, the only people who are going to have amenities they can use are, are are the very wealthy and that's that's just wrong that's 100 percent wrong and I, I shared this message with you from a listener named jamie yesterday he wrote i work at an arena every morning when i open the doors at 6 uh, a.m there's a group of seniors waiting 6 a.m to get in to use the walking track it's a steady stream all day long they need this place open it's not open and, and, 
and the fact that it's across the board, like, you know, I'd get it if it was more targeted and, you know, there was certain sports where they've identified outbreaks and they had to put a pause on them. But, you know, let's look at some of these sports. Tennis, 76 feet apart, and we have to close our indoor uh, tennis bubbles. Uh, You know, I I look at uh, swimming where all the data shows that – um, the COVID doesn't uh, transmit in, in those environments, yet we have to close all our public swimming pools. It's just, it's frustrating. I'm not going to, and, and I, I'm not, again, you know, setting you up for a, a, a spike in volleyball, but but the idea that, well, Olympians and Paralympians can use facility, I, I, I'm, a, I'm admirable of those people, and they represent our country and wear our flag. That's great. Are they not susceptible to testing positive to COVID? Are they more important than those seniors that we're talking about right now? Do we have, a, you know, is that not ableism? I hear that word thrown around all the time when people don't like this and don't like that. That feels kind of an exclusive club to me. Olympians and Paralympians can strut right into a gym, and we can't. You know, we've had two years to try to make sure we can handle this pandemic in a more efficient manner. Two years. And what I have not seen from any provincial government or the government of Canada is how are we increasing ICU capacity? You know, part of the problem going into this pandemic is that Canada had some of the fewest um, acute care beds per capita in the developed world. We went into this pandemic with 90% of our hospital beds already in use. So the margin for error was very small. And so you have the slightest uptick in hospitalization and the hospital system is overwhelmed. But, you know, it seems to be the pivot. Every time every time cases go up, uh, you simply have a lockdown. You think we'd be looking at other ways, like other countries have, in terms of enhancing capacity, system capacity. Yeah, haven't haven't done it. I need to ask you about hospitals. I I need to know where uh, you know Brampton's hospital. You and I were talking about it in the new year, and things were um, you know relatively quiet. It was good. It was in a much better position and place to handle any kind of Omicron surge than it might have been in March, April, and May. Where does it stand now on January fourth, Mayor Brown? So we've gone from two in ICU to ten in ICU. Um, we can handle about 50 in, in ICU. So we've gone from 2 to 10. So there, there has been an uptick. Um, but no one in the hospital leadership seems to be concerned that we will um, go beyond our capacity to handle ICU patients. What the big worry is right now is staffing. Because of yeah. isolation requirements and quarantine requirements, um, we're shorter on staff than, we, we, than we've ever been. And so they're actually calling people who are away now on vacations or have taken time off. They're calling everyone back in just because we have so many people off sick right now. Unbelievable. So just, just to clarify, you've got 50 spots, 10 are filled. Your ICUs in Brampton are at 20% capacity. Yeah, um, but you know, I would note that that has been an increase from yes. two weeks ago when we only had two in. At four, so you've gone from 4% capacity to 10% capacity. Yeah, and and I would note, um, you know, we are extremely underfunded when it comes to healthcare in Brampton, and so you know our our ICU capacity is a lot smaller than most other uh, communities, and even with a smaller ICU capacity, we can still manage it. When you're leader of the Ontario Conservatives, what were the conversations like? What was the pressing on then Premier Wynne about healthcare capacity? No one envisions this. No one envisions a global pandemic and a crisis. But was it on the table enough? Do you do you even look? I'm going to ask. Do you look in the mirror and go, 
I wish I'd pressed, uh, you know, Premier Win more on on doing more for healthcare because we used to strut around and we'd go travel and we'd go to the states and we'd go to Europe and we'd brag about our healthcare system. I'm not sure we're going to do that anytime soon. What are your recollections of that? Yeah, you know, I talked a lot about the healthcare crisis being in um, the healthcare system being in crisis when I was on the opposition benches. And I had a great health policy advisor, someone you should have on the show sometime, Francesca Grosso. Yeah. And, you know, she's put some really interesting stuff out on on social media in terms of where there's shortfalls in the healthcare system. Let me give you an example. One of the reasons that the hospitals are always almost at capacity. Like in Brampton, we were over capacity before the pandemic even started. It, we do too much in the hospitals. So one of the conversations I was trying to have provincially was, what can we do outside of the hospital? What can we take from inside the hospital, which is the most expensive and difficult area to serve patients and can do outside the hospital in, in, in a public um, universal setting? And so you look at cardiac surgery. Does it have to be done in the hospital? Does it have to be taking up space in the hospital? Or, or could there be a publicly funded clinic that you have outside of the hospital? And so I, I think this pandemic is going to teach some lessons. And one is it, our hospitals are overwhelmed. And how can we take that pressure off our hospitals? Mayor Brown, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I, I love how straight you shoot. And uh, and let's, uh, let's not uh, leave it very long again, because I think your messaging, your updating of where it's really at uh, is really important to our audience. Thanks for the time. Well, thanks for having me on. Great to have you in, and it's really great to be back. Uh, promise, no departures for a good chunk of time. That was too long to be off, um, and uh, I love being there when uh, when news is happening. I don't like delivering bad news. It would have been a difficult day to do uh, yesterday's show. Uh, many of these days have been difficult, and they're taxing, and they wear us down as parents, as people, as adults. Um, I want to get in just a sec to Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. I want you to hear this this morning, because I think it's universal when it comes to schools. Keir Starmer is the opposition leader in the United Kingdom to Boris Johnson. He put this out this morning. Schools are going back in the United Kingdom. You might remember they did not vaccinate 5 to 11-year-olds um, for a large chunk of time. They were they were 12 to 17, very hesitant. We went 12 to 17 much faster, much sooner. It hasn't stopped cases, but he he lays in something interesting that I want to get to with the Ontario Liberal leader, but I also want you to be able to react to it, too, on text 289-975-1640. His kids going back. Their schools are staying open, much as uh, many schools in the United States are. Here's what Keir Starmer said on Good Morning Britain a couple minutes ago. The answer to schools is um, that we should have vaccinated more children of those who are 12 and over who are eligible for the vaccine, only half of them have been vaccinated. One of the things we said to the Prime Minister before Christmas was use the Christmas break to open some schools to vaccinate the rest of those children. The other thing is ventilation in schools. Now, I've been saying this for a very long time, but if you want to reduce uh, the virus in schools, you need better ventilation. The government has just this weekend come up with 7,000 ventilators. It's, It's about one in four of what we really need. And their answer is, as I understand it, that children can sit with windows open in the freezing cold with their coats on and a mask on to learn. Well, that is just not ideal. No, it's not ideal, and it's uh, it's the wrong way to do things. It's one thing to crack a window open on New Year's Eve if you had another couple over that was vaccinated or boosted. I don't think we all hid under our kitchen tables all over the Christmas holidays, but I do think we all we all we all shave things down a little bit, and we have this 
obvious, brutal understanding that for those of us who are more vulnerable than others, and I wouldn't lump myself into that category, but I, I sure would put my parents in there in their mid-70s. They both used to smoke. They, you know, There's lots of reasons why I consider them more vulnerable. I won't be seeing them indoors until April. But as I said before, I'm not sure. I, I know schools shouldn't have been touched, and I know that for two 20-year-olds that are best friends from high school that want to get together at the pub on December 28th and have a beer, and they're both vaccinated and potentially boosted, I, I, I don't see what that has to do with our hospital capacity. I, I don't. Not at this point. And, and so we got a lot of hard questions about what we're doing, what our end game is, what our off-ramp is, and on and on. I want to bring on Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Thank you for making time for our audience. I hope you had as again, you know, we're all saying I hope everybody had a great Christmas and a great New Year. It's not as great as we hope it is next year, but I still hope it was good for you. Well, I appreciate that, Greg. Thanks for having me back on. Happy New Year, and I hope you're... Uh, the holiday break was good for you as well. I needed it. Uh, I think we all had to uh, increase our bandwidth, as I've uh, I've said several times, and uh, breathe this out a little bit. If I if I had um, if we'd done a New Year's Eve program and I had you on Friday morning, a day after Kieran Moore, Doctor Kieran Moore says, w- w- in essence, we're going to stay the course here on schools. Would you have said, well, that's what it looks like they'll do? Does what happened over the weekend and the announcement yesterday, Stephen, come as a surprise to you? Um, it, you know, it, it, it comes as a great disappointment to me, um, and I think to most people in Ontario that 20-plus months into this pandemic, we are, we are back in a really tough spot. I know that it's uh, discouraging for a lot of people in the province to see case numbers start to climb in, in a really big way and to see that schools are now closed for at least a couple of weeks, possibly longer. I think people are... Um, yeah, just greatly, greatly discouraged and disappointed that we're uh, and brutally exhausted with this ordeal. What's the biggest reason that they're closed? I've heard this is about um, getting more kids vaccinated. You and I have talked about that. And eventually, I think yeah. this this vaccine becomes uh, mandated, but it isn't happening anytime soon. I think that it will get added to the list of the other nine vaccines. And of course, it should be. Is this about teacher safety? Is this about hospital capacity? When you tell your kids that schools are closed what and they say, what's the biggest reason, Dad? What do you say? Well, you know, I told them that I because I had this conversation with them yesterday, obviously, or um, your audience has heard me say this before. My older daughter's in grade nine. My younger daughter's in grade five. I I will I will confirm uh, that my younger daughter was probably a little bit more upset about it than my older daughter. She was really looking forward to seeing her friends again and being back in school. And I explained to them that uh, and they're kind of used to it now, partially because of the work that I do, that that uh, this is just generally seeking for for the safety of the public, for them, for their teachers, for their friends. Uh, Again, it's just uh, it's not easy news for people to digest, given what we've gone through. In terms of what the rationale is behind it, I think, look, I'm a a partisan person. I'm an an opposition party leader. I think Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, though, it is fair to say that we are back in this spot again, because here in the province of Ontario, our provincial government has not has not really learned the key lesson from COVID that I think a government and the premier should have learned by now, which is that the the virus and this entire crisis is completely unpredictable uh, in many respects. But you have to make tough decisions early and show decisive leadership early in order to not have to make a much tougher decision later on. And that's the one thing I think repeatedly Doug Ford has hoped for the best and planned for the best 
rather than what a leader needs to do in a crisis, which is hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so the investments and the effort that should have been made back in October and November and earlier in December were not made. And so we find ourselves in a really tough spot again. I'm with you on a lot of that investment. We played the clip from Keir Starmer about about ventilation. Um, and I under I, I absolutely underrated ventilation going into the 2020 school year, as well as I thought it went the first three months. My question to you would be, why after 20 months of it not being done, is it magically going to get done in the next two weeks? Well, I don't know that it will. And I think that's my greatest fear, both as a, as a dad and as a politician, that, that Doug Ford and his team will, I'll say, squander the opportunity over the next two weeks or perhaps longer. To, you know, They're not going to take advantage of that time and do the right thing. And instead, they're just going to hope by moving all of the school stuff online that what's going to happen is organically the case numbers will start to come down again and then schools can reopen rather than saying, you know, what, what are the <clears throat> concrete steps we need to take right now and over the next two weeks or more to make sure ventilation is better, to make sure that we have N95 or equivalent masks in schools for both students and for staff, to make sure that the booster rollout and the vaccine rollout are sort of put on uh, overdrive, if I can put it that way. Yeah. That, those are the things that they should be doing. I fear that they won't. Stephen Del Duca is our guest, Ontario Liberal Leader. I think, and I said this to uh, Marit Stiles was on with me on the last show we did before Christmas, and I said, what I want from your party, from her party, is the advocacy that, that yeah, we want safer schools, but we've got an election coming in June where a lot of what hasn't been done can get corrected. I'm not sure we have time to do uh, ventilation, and it's our kids that are paying the price for the time that's been squandered. No question about it. I think yesterday's decision is wrong, and I think schools should be open. And I think the decision that Kieran Moore said they were going to, you know, press forward with on Thursday was the right decision. So wh- wh- I-, I just want to hear you say whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision to close schools yesterday. You know, I'm a little bit torn on this one, Greg. I, I think that um, when my wife and I spoke about it last week, we had concerns. Our younger daughter has one shot. Our older daughter has both. And I, I, you know, I think it was certainly in conversations I have with close friends and family who have young kids, uh, a really tough, really tough discussions over the over the holiday break about do we want our kids to be back? Do we feel safe? What I've said repeatedly is as as a dad, there's there's no place that I'd rather my kids be. Obviously, I want them back in schools. I mean, that makes the most sense for all of us for so many reasons, for how they learn, for their mental health, for their socializing. But I, but I also will confirm I have not felt for quite some time that the situation in schools on COVID is, is, uh, is good enough for our kids or for frontline education workers. And that goes back to the investments and the effort that just haven't been made by Doug Ford and his team. So uh, I don't like the situation that we're in. I, I'm nervous that it's going to be longer than two weeks of virtual learning before kids are able to go back. And I'm, again, nervous, quite quite uh, fearful that Doug Ford is not going to make those investments or, or that effort over the next little while, and we're going to see this opportunity squandered again. I think what I'm about to say would be a lot differently uh, viewed uh, by some. It'd certainly be way more controversial if I said it a year ago pre-vaccine. But I've had parents come to me and say, I'd rather... I'd rather take my chances with my kids getting Omicron because my neighbors have 
or uh, and, and will obviously shelter them away from vulnerable people, older people, immunocompromised people. I'd rather they got it and got it over with because they're fully vaccinated kids than than be online for eight weeks. They're, this is all going to be, with an endemic virus, this is all going to be about risk mitigation and cost-benefit analysis. And many parents are saying, I'd take my chances, but I want my kid in that classroom Wednesday, and they're not getting what they want now. No, they're not getting what they want, but I, but I, and I've heard from parents who have that approach. I've heard from lots of parents who have the opposite approach, especially if their kids are younger and sure. have only had one dose or haven't had either dose yet, because we know the uptake for younger kids is still, relatively speaking, fairly low, uh, which is a problem. Um, you know, I've had parents come at me and, and talk from the opposite perspective that they're nervous, they don't feel comfortable about their kids' safety. And, uh, and so, therefore, they would rather that their kids be at home. Other parents have told me they want the choice. And so this is, this is part of the problem we have when there's not consistent, comprehensive peace of mind for moms and dads across the province. And again, uh, not to get partisan about this, but if from the very beginning efforts had been made around shrinking class sizes, the better ventilation we've talked about, the masking, the vaccine rollout, all of those things had really been taken very seriously from day one by this provincial government. I think that the peace of mind that parents need to have would be so much better than it is right now instead of a lot of people feeling a lot differently about this as we go through the rest of this ordeal. Do you worry now, maybe more than ever, Stephen, um, about vaccine hesitancy? I I absolutely took mine. The first chance I got, my teenage boys, the same thing. I will say I'm a little more hesitant on the idea of a booster for them anytime soon. I'm hoping that's that's not mandated for months to come. But the problem is, is that people saw vaccines as as the way out, as the way back to life. And I worry that people now will say, I can't do this. I can't do that. Why would I do this? I and, and I I don't have a great answer for them. What's your what your answer? Yeah, I have that concern as well, That because people are so exhausted and they're frustrated and it's understandable. I, I think the answer is that the, and I know it's not an easy thing for everyone to hear at this point in time, but this is what the, this is the advice that the doctors are giving us, the best medical advice that's, that's being given to us. And, and it, it, to me, makes the most sense from a, what is the responsible thing to do at this point in time? And so... You know, what's being asked of most of us, you know, on, on the vaccine front is roll up your sleeve and get the shot. And it does give you that that sort of best line of defense to uh, to keep yourself safe, to keep your loved ones safe and to help us get through to the other side. So I know it's frustrating. I know it's aggravating. But uh, because we're back in this, uh, we're back in this spot again, which is a really tough position to be in for everybody after 20, 21 months. Mm. But it is still the best thing to do. And I am a person who believes in the science and I believe in the evidence. And and I believe most Ontarians do as well. When you when you run for election this June in the provincial election, I saw a chart yesterday put out by a bunch of people, uh, credible people, uh, as to where we are in Canada and Ontario lags behind other provinces too in hospital beds per citizens, and we're way behind. We're way behind the United States. We're way behind the United Kingdom, and we're miles behind a lot of other European and Far East countries. What kind of pledge, what kind of promise uh, can a liberal government make to to change that stat around and push us more towards the lead instead of the rear? 
Yeah, it's a it's a really great point, and I think this will be the the most important takeaway from um, from the pandemic for all of us in Ontario. Will be how do we build a public health care system and a publicly funded education system that is really really resilient to uh, to these kinds of challenges or or just the day to day challenges that we have when you think about the number of um, uh, surgeries that are going to be postponed because of what we're going through right now. Again, those numbers are scary. And, it, you know, given how much we invest in public health care in this province every year, we should not be in a position where our system is is so badly knocked off stride uh, by what we're what we're going through right now. So it's it's work that we're looking at right now. I'm sure the other political parties as well are and we'll have more to say about it. But we need a system that's resilient and responsive and can withstand this kind of ordeal. Steve, we don't have it right now. Thank you so much for uh, for the time today uh, and for being frank in, in your answers. I always appreciate it. I always look forward to our conversations. Uh, thanks again. Thanks, Greg. You take care. Stephen Del Duca, Ontario Liberal Leader. Um, yeah, I mean, again, we're asking six- and seven-year-olds to miss their classroom uh, because we don't have enough hospital beds. I need you to really think about that and ask yourself how, how that's possible after this many months. What? A disgrace because that's what it is that's why they're doing it that that's not it's not about anything else don't kid yourself don't get fooled by anything else that's what it's about it's very wrong all right i like a lot of things i think you guys like as listeners guys girls men women all that stuff decisiveness is one of them i i don't i don't like waffling i'd like to explain if i got something wrong like if i got something wrong i know it at like 902 a.m and i want to be on the next day or i'll mention on twitter i'm like this this you know wasn't right and i'm not talking about something that was rude or untoward or anything i, I just mean you know uh, you know an opinion somebody can turn my direction in an opinion if you haven't pivoted and evolved in 20 months of this um wow and yesterday I heard uh, the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, and I played clips of him. You know this. I played clips of him in November and December after he was elected. And I was pretty impressed by his frankness. He's willing to get out there. I want, I don't know, a little of this from our politicians at every level of government. I look, I'm looking for a decisive, introspective confident person what have i said confident households are raising confident kids right now it sucks to give them bad news i don't have it together all the time but i'm gonna go crying in my pillow right privately before i you know I-, I see covid rattle me in front of my kids i'm not gonna have that happen here's eric adams doing exactly what a leader should do yesterday talking about schools the safest place for our children is in a school building and we are going to keep our schools open and ensure that our children are safe in a safe environment we're not sending an unclear message of what is going to happen day to day i'm going to tell you what's going to happen day to day we are saying open we're going to to do everything that we have to do to keep our schools open and I know there's questions about staffing. I know there's questions about testing. There's a lot of questions. But we're going to turn those question marks into an exclamation point. We're staying open. That's it. That's it. And by the way, in New York City, if a child has COVID, they'll test the classroom. The tests go home. You come back with a negative test. It's called test to stay. And many red states and blue states made this work in September. 
and we feel miles away from that. And listen, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not laying this at the boards, the unions for for treating this like it's, you know, April 2020. Not all that's their fault. The one thing I heard over the holidays a ton is you're giving tests to teachers or sorry, students, but not to teachers. Like, come on. Come on. That's if, if that's not messaging, I don't know what is. Anthony Fury joins me now from the Toronto Sun. When you hear Eric Adams talk, you and I have talked about accountability, pivoting, having new understandings of this, being pragmatic, using data. That's that's a leader, and I'm, I, I, I wish I wish we had an Eric Adams somewhere in our midst, and I don't know if we do, Anthony. Agreed. Well said. And one of the most interesting parts of Eric Adams' comments there was towards the end when he said, I know there are concerns about this. I know there are concerns about that. We will address those concerns. What we have here in Ontario is we're told, well, we have to shut everything down because we have ICU issues. And then one says, well, how about we get more beds? Oh, yeah, I know we got more beds, but that's really not the problem. There needs to be more nursing. Okay, well, how about we uh, get more nurses this way? Oh, no, it's not that easy. We can't do it. Okay, well, white flag, throw up our hands, all done, lock everything down. Why are we not saying, yes, there are challenges with beds, there are challenges with nurses, there are challenges with another couple logistical issues, but we got this we can do this, and I assure you, the people, that we will rise to the challenge and we will solve those problems. Instead, we have people up at the podium. Matt Anderson, CEO of Public Health there of, of Ontario Health, paid $640,000 a year. He got in front of the podium and said, yeah, we're having trouble procuring a few nurses, so yeah, we got to lock her all down. Really? We cannot rise to the occasion that this challenge cannot be met after the Hundreds of billions of dollars, Greg, that we as Canadian taxpayers have collectively thrown at COVID. I think Canadians should say enough is enough and no longer accept these excuses. Right now, ICUs are at 25% of pandemic peak. That's where it checks out. I know over the right. holidays and with the stat holiday yesterday, there's there's new data. Um, and and I don't doubt that we're in, we're in for a rougher ride. And so much of this is staffing. But that's what you're saying as a parent. I'm saying as a parent, you're keeping my kids home. You're keeping kids out of kindergarten and junior kindergarten because of of nurse staffing issues. What do the two have to do with each other? No, exactly. And let's be clear. It's been maintained by all public health officials that they are not particularly worried about children or people in their 20s, 30s, 40s vaccinated from getting COVID-19. Obviously, nobody wants people to go out and get it, but they're not concerned about that factor. That's, that's not what worries them. Really, the sole driving issue behind shutting down society and denying uh, children who are at very low risk of COVID access to in-class education is these hospital capacity issues. So let's throw everything we can at dealing at these issues. And the idea that the, the solution to this, that that the people who are paid handsomely to protect the hospitals are trying to flip it around on us and tell us that it is the job of our children to protect the hospitals. I think that's getting laughable right now. And I think we do need to say to these people, not to our frontline heroes, let's, let's be clear about this. We're not talking about the doctors. We're talking about mm. the back office bureaucrats. Don't tell our kids they need to do more now. I think we're well entitled right now to ask these bureaucrats to start doing more. The one thing that we, I think we we saw coming in December, and I think anybody, whether they're politically motivated, whether they're partisan or not, looked at and said, um, schools are going to close naturally as they did on December 17th, and cases will explode exponentially from the 17th till now. They've done exactly that. Right. No one questioned that. I, I find it shocking to think anybody thinks keeping now kids home 
another two weeks will lower cases if we're talking cases. Do you think they will? One thing that's very frustrating, Greg, is that a lot of the people who back in September said schools can't reopen because things will be calamitous. There were people who on the very day that wave in September, the sort of wave that wasn't that it peaked. There were people who I saw from the Ontario Science Table who were on the news saying kids are going to be filling the hospitals by October with COVID-19. It's going to be nuts. We're going to see horrible hospitalizations among kids. That never happened. So I think we need to take all of this we're hearing now with a similar grain of salt with all of this. And I think we instead need to look, as, as Mayor Eric Adams is saying from New York, look for a pathway forward rather than look for impediments to bring us back. If you want to, to have your child wear an N95 mask or for, to have teachers to have the choice to wear all of that, that's fine. But this messaging we're hearing now, we can't send uh, kids back to school until they're all wearing masks, until every kid was vaccinated. I'm sorry, we sent everybody back to school before we were even talking about all of those things, and the sky didn't fall then. So I really think when someone says, of course I support reopening schools, but there needs to be this in place or that in place, well, they're just tipping their hat that they actually don't support schools being reopened. Anthony Fury, Toronto Sun, our guest Toronto Today. Uh, I, I did note yesterday, Doug Ford said, one. this is the quote, 1% of people who get Omicron end up in hospital. I don't know how I don't know what that number means. I don't know that just that felt very off script. And, and I, I heard from a bunch of people. Uh, I heard from a virologist who doesn't like doing sort of the media tour. And I'm not knocking right. those that do. But, you know, he'd prefer to, to not be one of these celebrity doctor people. And he's like, there's just no that that's total misinformation. What did you make of that right. comment? Uh, it does seem like that's a high number and that that's not the case. That's not what's actually going on. I think the premier certainly rounded up uh, to the nearest percentage point, although maybe he could round down because I've seen some figures that put it up below 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that, that does not seem particularly accurate. But I also think what it shows is, again, the concerns are not that the regular people uh, need to be particularly afraid about this. Kieran Morris confirmed that Public Health Ontario shows that for the individual this is 54% milder than what we were previously dealing with. So your, your personal risk assessment has even gone down uh, in recent weeks with the rise of Omicron. I don't, and this is what I tell teachers, and I know, uh, I know how, you know, I know, I know the job that most of them do, and this is like any other industry, our industry, cops, firefighters, doctors, whatever. Most of them are damn good at what they do, and th- yeah. and and to me, I'm convinced that way more than 80% of them want to be yeah. in the classroom. They're pissed that they're not there tomorrow. But the one thing I I can't I can't quite get my head around is for a teacher to say they're less safe now, going in Wednesday morning, yeah. fully vaccinated and boosted than they would have been going into a classroom in September of 2020 when when they weren't vaccinated and no one was. I can't get my head around that in the least. Well, that's the issue right now. And I think there's been an unfortunate amount of uh, misrepresentation of the data around schools, pediatric infectious disease experts have maintained that thankfully we've learned COVID-19. If there's any silver lining to it, it's that uh, it is less severe than influenza in kids. Uh, that uh, cases in schools, that data that's reported, that actually doesn't mean transmission no. in schools. And we've had Dr. This is not me making this up, Greg. This is Eileen Davila, Lawrence Lowe, Kieran Moore, previously David Williams. This is information that they have all said that transmission within the classroom is actually a small percentage of that number out there. So let's let's channel that information and let's amplify it and let's use it as a pathway 
uh, to advocate for our kids. I really think that we're, we're long past the point where we need to liberate low-risk people from these restrictions. And, and I think older individuals and you know even baby boomers who are at higher risk of COVID-19 they need to start being advocates for our young. Tell you what, I got a I got a listener in texting while we're talking whose daughter's 17. She's going to work at Walmart today, 3 p.m. till 11 p.m., eight-hour shift. You don't need to be vaccinated to go to Walmart. And she can't go to class tomorrow, and she can't play soccer indoors with whatever it was, 13 of her teammates. Like, we're doing this wrong 20 months in when that's the case. And one of the things that helped me get over my fears of uh, COVID during the first wave, and I was extremely concerned about it and supportive of the initial lockdowns, was when one realizes that those people you're encountering every day at the grocery store uh, are still there day after day. If they didn't get COVID in that setting and they were healthy and they were fine, uh, that's not to suggest that that's you know, mm-hmm. the, the case for everyone in every setting. But, you know, there are obviously, yeah, young, young people are just going to go work at the grocery store now instead of going to high school or university. And they're, they're going to be fine at the store and they probably would have been fine in the school setting. It's terrible. Terrible. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much. I uh, really appreciate the time. We'll talk real soon. Thanks, Greg. All right, a real tragic uh, accident in uh, downtown Toronto. Sometimes, like, the the stuff all blends together, and there's only so much time you can spend as a talk topic on it because there's going to be car accidents. There's going to be shootings, and it's like, like, eventually you're like, what can I say every day about it? You're just sort of, you know, a stenographer for details and police reports. But this one was different because it happened on a really busy street, Boxing Day, people shopping at Young and Richmond, Dead, dead, dead middle of the afternoon, two o'clock on a Sunday, and the car ac- actually flipped. And now, eighteen, an eighteen-year-old died in hospital three days ago as a result. Um, our next guest wrote about it uh, in the Globe and Mail. I always enjoy uh, reading her work, and she's a columnist and feature writer for the Globe and Mail. She is Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Renzetti. Elizabeth, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time for me. I, I've appreciated your work, and we've been trying to get you for a while. So, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Greg. You're also you're also probably an equal amount uh, Anglophile as me, given you were living in London for nine years. I mean, I'm I miss I miss England desperately. You must be the same. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> I loved living in London. <laughs> it was uh, t- Toronto has some similarities to it when um, when you see this accident and you see the carnage in the car. I think the biggest question a lot of people who cover the city or, or just opine period were saying. How in a 40k zone, how fast could this vehicle have been traveling to to flip on its side onto the sidewalk and and crash into a store? Yeah, I know. At first I should I just want to say it's a heartbreaking story mm-hmm. and I feel so terrible for that young man and his family um as I know we all do. Um if you've worked or lived downtown, you know, I grew up in this I was born and raised in Toronto. I grew up here. Um, if you live or work downtown or, you know, even anywhere near any of the arterial, arterial roads in Toronto, you know how fast people are going. People are, we already have uh, on many roads a pretty high speed limit, 40 kilometers in some cases, 50 kilometers in some cases, and people exceed those. We know that because we know, for example, how many tickets were given out when they uh, installed those automated speed cams, mm. and it was, between, I think, July 2020 and July 2021, it was um, more than 200,000 speeding tickets. And that's only where those you know cameras were installed. So how much worse actually is the problem than we know? 
it's it's something that feels like people that cover travel and transportation in the city uh, for your for your paper and and others have pointed out that that certainly since COVID, but maybe it was heading in that direction anyway. The idea of the police being more of a, a of an enforcement force as opposed to almost showing up after bad things have happened, um, it, whether they're tapped for resources or whether it's a planned strategy, it, it, it feels fairly obvious that, that many people feel that tickets and, and enforcement and deterrence just aren't there like they used to be. Yeah, and there have been reports showing that, uh, in fact, that enforcement um, has been down. And the other thing is the messaging you get often from police is along the lines of what we heard after that Boxing Day crash, which is sort of, you know, pedestrians have to be aware and pedestrians have to keep their eyes open. Well, if you walk in this city, and God knows if you ride your bike in this city, um, you are keeping your eyes open. But there's only so much you can do as a pedestrian unless you're like you're you're not walking around coated in armor like a knight, you know. You you have to rely on the fact that drivers are also going to be um, obe- obeying all of the rules of the road and mm. obeying the speed limit for one thing. But that's just um, kind of an individual action. And what we have to be looking at is action on a much kind of more systemic level. And that was a rough one, wasn't it, Elizabeth? Because that, like, when you think about walking downtown Young Street, which we've all done, you know, in in the, to quote Dickens, in the best of times and the worst of times, that's not yeah. that's not something you plan for. That's not having your nose in your phone and crossing an intersection. You you should feel safe, really close to the 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 storefronts as opposed to the roadway, um, walking in an opposite direction of a vehicle. And these people weren't because of the excess speed of this accident. Yeah, and in fact, when you look at like where pedestrian accidents happen, it'll be people getting off of streetcars or crossing at an intersection, and they're hit by somebody turning right or left. Uh, my own son, when he was younger, when he was 13, was hit by a car when he was in a um, a crosswalk. He was fine. Um, fortunately, he wasn't badly hurt at all. But, I mean, he was in a crosswalk with a crossing guard. And this was on uh, Ossington, which is a street um, in the north part of Ossington, where people go really, really, really fast. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of enforcement on on that stretch at all. Elizabeth Renzetti is our guest uh, from the Globe and Mail. No, it's funny. You and I were talking about London earlier on. They uh, they put in, I want to say it's even 15 years ago, a congestion charge for downtown. Yeah. And you know what folks in the UK are like. Uh, they, they're a lot more into the idea of mass transit and whether it's the tube or, or British Rail or whatever. It, it, there's a little more variety in a, in a bigger metropolitan area. Toronto's a world-class city. But I'm not sure we'd say it has world-class public transit. London claims that and probably does have that. So is a congestion charge even feasible in a city like Toronto when when we probably can't get people from A to B easily enough? Um, I think anything is feasible if you have the vision and if you decide on it. And if you decide, for example, that safety and also the environment are things that we want to work towards as you know, what we think of ourselves as a world-class city. So I absolutely agree with you about London, and mm-hmm. it has an amazing transit system, although Londoners like to complain about it. But I also lived in Berlin for a year, uh, an amazing, amazing city, which has incredible public transit, and which is thinking about, uh, you know, possibly even going car-free uh, in the central the central core, um, 
in uh, there's been a petition to gather signatures uh, to explore this possibility, and I can see it possibly happening. It's also a city that invests hugely heavily in public transit, and when you have that, then you have people realizing that public transit is reliable and it's going to be there for you and it's not going to break down, and then they're more willing to, to take it. And I think during COVID, maybe people, some people thought, oh, you know, public transit is unhealthy, but um, in fact, it's it's not unhealthy and it's a sign of a healthy city when you are investing in that for all people. You are, yeah. And, and your op-ed is, is fantastic. Your column in The Globe is fantastic, laying out some of what could happen. Do you worry, as I kind of do too, that COVID is so everywhere and it's going to be the major election issue w- in June in the province? It's going to be a major election issue municipally that, that a big important issue like this about where we go as a city and, and a province, it, may not, it just may not get the, the amplification and the, and, and the air that it deserves. Well, I think the sign of a successful society and a community is that you're able to and should be looking 10, 20, 50, 100 years down the road to what kind of place are we building for mm-hmm. our community, for our families, for our neighbours. And I think short-termism has been a problem in, in Toronto for a long time. And there has been an underinvestment in long-term transportation and long-term infrastructure and an unfortunate emphasis on on cars and how um, they are used to move people around. So I think if we had some vision at the top, um, and we are starting to see, you know, there is investment in public transit at the provincial and municipal level. So, you know, things are perhaps moving that way. We have to remember we're not going to be in COVID mm-hmm. times forever, hopefully hopefully for not much longer at all. So we have to be able to see the future that we want for the city. Elizabeth Renzetti from the Globe and Mail. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for doing it. Happy New Year, and I hope we can chat again. I hope we can, Greg. Thanks very much. You got it. An unvaccinated four-year-old can go to daycare today. A vaccinated five-year-old cannot go to kindergarten tomorrow. They can both go to the mall and shop. They can do that. Like, it's... I Yeah, I... It's just too dangerous. We cannot cannot have that five-year-old there. And we can talk about masks and protocol and where they should eat and what they should do and PPE and all that stuff. I'm here for those conversations. I always have been. I never haven't been. But, yeah, that tells you that right there. Stefan Baral is a uh, epidemiologist who we had on um, on our last show, December 22nd. Again, it's ages ago. Here's what he tweeted two days ago. I'm not sure who needs to hear this, but for essential workers... Parents with young kids, schools closing means they can't go to work. So who are essential workers? They keep lights and internet on, water, cars, and supply chain running and beyond, i.e., they keep society afloat. So, yeah, it's great. Hey, I see all these doctors. Hey, order takeout. Do this. Support restaurants. All the doctors that said close crap down. Um I guess we got to deliver food to them, but I, I I don't feel good about it. I'm not I'm not trying to spit in their burgers, but I'm I'm also I don't feel good about that sort of elite aspect of the quote unquote locked down nature of what we've got. I don't feel very good about it one bit. I feel quite guilty about it, in fact. But 
we did everything we could do. We said everything we could do. On this show, we sure did. I'm so happy to welcome back uh, Sheba Siddiqui, who uh, was, I think, gone a day earlier. I can't even remember the last day. So I worked on the 22nd. Did you work till the, the 20? And, and boy, did you work hard on the 20th or 19th or whatever that last day it was. You were you were bringing it. Good morning. No, I was I was off before that. I've been off for like, it feels like a year right now. And I'm back. And you went to Montreal. Let's go. Let's emphasize. Let's go shiny, happy people stuff first. Let's do that. You went to Montreal. Okay. Ski I, I had a lovely break. Good. Oh, I went to Montreal. I went to Toronto. This is before the Quebec lockdown. So I had a great time in Montreal. Went to Schwartz, had my smoked meat sandwich. Went to Mont Tremblant, went skiing with my family. Uh, we were, you know, physically distanced and uh, outdoors masking it up with our neck warmers on the mountain so we were fine <laughs> had a wonderful trip and i uh, came back to this to being home together for what's going to be months on end it seems and i told you uh, i said it earlier but uh but thursday it looks like okay you know i, I mentioned that tweet from from dr burrell we're gonna you know we're gonna sort of hold the fort here we're gonna we know it's gonna be rocky we know it's gonna be bumpy but we're gonna we're gonna risk mitigate because we know how to do that we'll, we'll you know i think a lot of people certainly shave down their holiday plans for gatherings and new year's eve and all that and and we're gonna see where that goes and on thursday and on friday morning and even new year's eve she but felt like that's what we would do and then sunday afternoon came and this 180 happens once again from the province no, if you look at, I think, I, I, my tweet before I left for my break, I said, okay, so you guys, in January when the schools are closed, I knew this was coming. I've known you this did. was we, coming we, the we, whole time. I've, I've been telling you this for months, that the, our government does not care about our children. It does not care about the parents of Ontario. And this is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I knew this was coming. This is, they have been nothing but, they've. this is what they've shown me from the beginning. If someone shows you who they are, believe them. My government, my premier has showed me he does not care about my children. They are last on his list of priorities in this pandemic. So of course the schools will be closed. Of course. I knew this was coming. I had, I have, I have planned for it. I am ready for it. They are not going back in two weeks. Mark my They're words, not. Brady. You're right about There's that. There's no way. No, no, I agree so, with that. But so if I'd, if I'd called that. you Friday, if I'd called you Friday after Dr. Kieran Moore speaks Thursday, wouldn't you have said? No. You really thought an about face was coming over 72 hours, and we don't even know based on what. I did not believe what he said on Thursday. I, I, it's too good. I thought it was too good to be true. There's no way. A small part of me hoped and wished, but in the back of my mind, I've, I've been down this road. We've all been down this road. Come on. A, 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 a tiger doesn't change its stripes. Is that the saying? No. They do not care. When are you guys going to get this into your heads? They do not care about our kids. So it is up to us, as parents, to make sure that they're, my number one priority right now, more than anything over the next, I'd say, two months, is my children's mental health. Sure. That is my focus. Think of, and you know who I'm thinking about right now? I'm thinking about those single mothers who need to do this on their own, who have to choose between their job and, to, and staying home with their kids right now. Those healthcare workers who need to go to work, but now they can't because their kids, they need to watch their kids at school for virtual school. What are we doing to these people? These kids who live in abusive homes, who yeah. their reprieve is going to school, and now they're stuck at home for who knows how long in these situations. These are the people that I'm thinking about right now. Well, it's not just, you know, and I play that clip from, did you hear the clip from Eric Adams I played the, for the mayor of New York? I did, yes. 
Boy, yes. are we boy, are we lacking that? Are we lacking that kind of confidence and yes, yeah, swagger? And it's not reckless swagger. They now has New York State done a lot more to expand hospital capacity? Yes, they have. Have they done a lot more to provide safeguards in schools than even Ontario has, especially Ontario's? Yes, they also have. But um, but the message the message is what is what the takeaway is for me that there's somebody willing to say it's my ass on the line here if this doesn't go well it's 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 I, I'm a disgraced you know no. mayor of New York City and they get a lot of cr- mayors but, of New York City uh, that's, that's, a, that's a harder that city to, here. that's a harder city to be mayor of than Toronto is where we kind of play footsie a little bit with we, we've done that we, we even did that with with Rob Ford and we sure did that with David Miller, Mel Lastman. Like, we we don't really dig in on mayors we because so much, it's so important who the premier is. As we've realized, you and I have talked about this, that's the most important position in anybody's life. And it sure is. If all you, if, you, if your healthcare and education are your priorities, well, it's only about the province. I mean, Justin Trudeau's, it'd be great if Justin Trudeau was more prominent and saying, I don't want any premier closing the schools. Got it? Good. But we don't have that. That's not who he is. And I'm not even sure that's what the position is. Brady, you're what you're asking for is accountability. And have you seen our province? There is no accountability. They say one thing and do another. They promise us this and they go the other way. And what do they say? Oh, sorry. You know, this is what he says. Folks, it really breaks my heart. Really breaks my heart. What? We needed you on Thursday when you were at the cottage. Where were you then? So I'm... I, you know what? Believe it or not, I'm not even angry. I'm not even upset. I, I have it planned. I've spoken to other parents. I'm going to get my kids socialized. You watch. You watch me find every single loophole I can from what they have asked us to do. I think it's an interesting conversation to have with parents to ask. Uh, I had a conversation with my wife in the car yesterday as we were going to see friends, and uh, and we brought our skates, and we wanted to have a nice day in the cold sunshine. And we did. We tried. We, you know, find the joy where you can. But I said, I, I don't want to put our eighth grader online. And she's like, we got to be realistic about this. She's listening, and we have these conversations, and no, no parent should unilaterally get more of a vote. But I said, I'm trying to figure out another way around this. Can I teach him two hours a day? And she started laughing. <laughs> But I, get but I would it. do it. I want. Yeah, I want to do something like it. I know you would, and maybe you should. And it doesn't have to be sitting in front of his books all day. Like mm-hmm. my younger two, they're not going in. But you think I'm going to put my kindergartner again, again in, in front of a no, screen all day? No way. I saw what happened. He is not even logging on once, not even for attendance. Nothing. So for the next, let's say, two to three months, he's going to be home, and we're going to be we're going to have a kindergartner that we have to homeschool. My eight year old. I saw what happened to her mental health. She's the most brightest, wonderful little girl in the world. She just closed up. After a few weeks of of virtual school last time, she's not going on. I'm not doing that to my kids again. I don't care. And they're going to be socialized. Well, even if we're at a park outdoor every day, all day, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I I work full time, just like all of you other Ontario moms out there. We're in this together. And the dads, I will say in the dads, I won't leave you guys out. But we need to do what we need to do. So if you feel like two hours a day with your son, and who knows what that experience would be like. He might look back, Brady, and think, like, that was the best time with my dad. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you watch a historical movie and then you talk about it. You like you're yes. just not you're just not staring at a screen. Exactly. Well, you, your friends are texting you on your iPhone because that's what they do anyway. There's seven or eight kids, and I'm like, uh, let's get your full focus somehow for two hours a day because you're going to high school next year, uh, where your brother's doing really well, and and you're gonna need it. And I, again, here's my relief, Sheba, is I'm I'm beyond relieved that 
none of your kids, none of my kids are in university. I hate oh, saying that's the yes. people I feel worse for, but yep. those are finite years you mm-hmm. never, ever, ever get back. I think even that last year of high school, I was thinking oh, kids yeah. who are in the last yeah, year of yeah. high school right now, it sucks for them. So this started then halfway through their 10th grade year and they graduate. By the way, it's I, I had two teachers bring it up to me absolutely independent of each other yesterday that right now is when kids are applying to go to universities and college and they're filling out applications. And they were counting on, by the way, being in person to have conversations with their teachers, to write their January exams, to maybe improve their marks to get into a better school. Where's all that land right now? How are yeah. we doing exams again? It's impossible. It's impossible to prevent cheating and fraud and, and letting things fall through the cracks without in-person exams. I, I've never had to write one in my existence. Um, and they had two years. The two years. Great. They had two years to plan for this. They had two, And now they're like telling me two weeks from now you're going to have N95s everywhere. You're going to have better ventilation. You're going to give priority vaccinations. Come on. Let's be real. Just be, yeah. stop gaslighting us. You're, I feel like I'm in a relationship with my abusive boyfriend. That's what I feel like. Who keeps gaslighting me. Yeah. Well, play, uh, play the field. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Back with a live show tomorrow, which is Wednesday. We still got to get our days straight. 5.30 to 9, right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And the podcast available soon after the show ends. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.